0: Welcome to Literature Out Loud, sponsored by RMU Radio and Rune, the Robert Morris University Literary Magazine. I'm John Lawson. My guests today are Rune editor Danielle Connors and our interviewee, Michael Sims. Welcome, Danielle and Michael.
1: Thank you, John.
2: Hi.
0: Michael Sims, where do I start introducing you? You've had a rich and varied career, I guess. We'll start by saying you're on campus today to read and talk about some of the poems from your poetry collections and possibly passages from your novels. I'm not sure exactly. Probably
1: not the novel today.
0: Okay. Um, but you've also had a long career in publishing. You founded the renowned Autumn House Press, and you now run my favorite blog called Vox Populi. I've never actually heard you say the word. Vox Populi. It, right? Populi. Okay. Mm. We're going real Latin on that. Okay. That's right. Um You've published three full-length collections of poetry, four novels, and written two poetry textbooks. You've been the lead editor of over 100 published books, including the best-selling Autumn House Anthology of Poetry. And you've taught at a number of universities, including the Chatham MFA program. It is a real pleasure to welcome you to RMU and to Lit Out Loud, Michael.
1: Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. I'd like to turn very
0: quickly to your poetry, but before we do, tell me, how long have you been in Pittsburgh and what brought you here?
1: I was in love with a woman who got a job in Pittsburgh, and so I followed her here in 1987. And now we have two grown children and uh, we're ready to retire. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
0: Well, uh, so Danielle, you wanna?
2: Michael, would you read your first piece for us?
1: Certainly. Just by way of intro, my daughter is now 28 years old. But when she was four, I taught her how to swim at the neighborhood pool. And that's one of the great accomplishments of my life. And uh, this is a poem called The Summer You Learned to Swim. The summer you learned to swim was the summer I learned to be at peace with myself. In May, you were afraid to put your face in the water. But by August, I was standing in the pool once more when you dove in, then retreated to the wall saying, you forgot to say sugar. So I said, come on, sugar, you can do it. And you pushed off and swam to me and held on, laughing. Your hair stuck to your cheeks. You hiccuped with joy and swam off again. And I dove in too, trying new things. I tried not giving advice. I tried waking early to pray. I tried not rising in anger. Watching you, I grew stronger. Your courage washed away my fear. All day I worked hard thinking of you. In the evening, I walked the long hill home. You were at the top, waving your small arms, pittering down the slope to me, and I lifted you high, so high to the moon. That summer, all the world was soul and water, light glancing off peaks. You learned the turtle, the cannonball, the froggy, and the flutter, and I learned to stand and wait for you to swim to me. That
0: was Michael Sims reading The Summer You Learned to Swim.
2: Michael, where do you get your ideas for topics to write about?
1: Uh... Generally through listening, I think the basis of any good writing is is listening to other people, to nature, and most of all to your own feelings, your own experiences, and finding the rhythms that are there and trying to capture those through language.
0: As a former water safety instructor, I relate heavily to your uh, imagery in that poem, Michael. And
1: it's a true story.
0: I can well believe it, and, uh, <laughs> the reciprocal learning that goes on as a father to a child. Is
1: oh, yes. I, I think one of the most important things we do is raise children, and we learn so much from them.
0: Yeah. I remember I started in my fatherhood convinced that um, environment was everything for a child, and then my son quickly proved differently. Um, at least 50% was him. Not me. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, Turning for a minute to your role as blogger, Michael, I got to ask how you managed to keep up such a flow of high-quality poems and essays and videos on your Bucks Populi uh, blog. Um, You put up a couple of posts a day, and I can't even imagine how much time you must put into finding that material.
1: It does take time to create the flow of of essays and poetry and film and humor and other things that i post but i love it um i i love finding new things that i can share with the audience and uh it's uh, it doesn't feel like work it feels like a conversation i'm having with the poets and artists on one hand and with my audience with the other uh so um uh, it, it, it does take time to to produce a steady flow of stuff, and yet it seems easy to.
0: Well, it's a wonderful mm-hmm. gift to me personally, and I thank you for it.
1: Well, we have published several of your pieces, John. I admire you as a writer.
0: Well, thank you.
2: Um, I wish I shared your opinion, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, we're always our own worst critic, aren't we? Indeed.
2: Michael, would you read your second piece for us?
1: Certainly, Danielle. Thank you. I'm going to share a piece about sort of the spirit of Pittsburgh. It's a prose poem. It's called Scarf. Yesterday, I was standing at the corner of Carson and 19th in the south side, waiting for the light to change. To my right, a young man in a Pittsburgh Steelers cap crossed the street, pulling a pair of gloves out of his jacket, when a scarf fell out of his pocket into the middle of the street. Not realizing he had dropped it, he kept walking. I called him, sir, sir, you dropped something, but he didn't hear me and kept walking. A middle-aged blonde woman on the opposite corner looked at me, wondering what I was yelling about, and I said, he dropped his scarf and pointed. She turned toward the young man who was already 20 yards down the block and yelled at him, but he didn't hear her. However, an old African-American man noticed her and yelled at the young, young man who kept walking on, oblivious to the chain of alarm behind him. Trying to get his attention, I yelled, Black hat! Black hat! And the blond woman and the old man picked up the cry, Black hat! Black hat! And the young man turned. The old man pointed at the blond woman, and she signaled the young man to come back to the corner, which he did. He started walking back, puzzled. The blond woman held up her hand to stop the traffic, walked into the street, picked up the scarf, and returned it to the young man who smiled, turned, and continued on his way. I have no idea whether the scarf was important to the young man or whether he would have missed it at all, but it was a moving experience for me to be cooperating in this small gesture of kindness. The old man and the blonde woman smiled and waved at me, and I felt a surge of gratitude to be among such decent people in this lovely city, in a dark time, with the light of kindness seems so rare, how lovely! Um, yeah, that moment of
0: unexpected cooperation in a a cause that just pops up
1: yes one of the reasons my wife and i settled in pittsburgh is that there is a spirit here not just in the city itself but in this whole region of cooperation of a kindness um we sometimes complain about the traffic in pittsburgh but if you've ever driven in another city you know how much kinder the drivers are here and that's just one way you see that kind of spirit that operates here i don't know why that's in the culture here but it definitely is i've lived in a lot of different places and pittsburgh metropolitan area is special
0: as a non-pittsburghian myself i can verify that too i'm from richmond virginia originally mm-hmm. and, uh,
1: it's well, we Southerners, you know, we pride ourselves on our courtesy, but sometimes we don't live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah.
0: Uh, I see I've thrown our order out by accident a little bit, but anyhow, if you would proceed with your third piece now.
1: Certainly. How about another Pittsburgh piece? That sounds good. One of my favorite poets uh, is a South American named Cesar Vallejo. Uh, he lived some time ago, died. I believe in the 1930s. And uh, he has a poem called um, Blackstone on a White Stone. And the first line is, I will die in Paris on a rainy day. So I took that line and ran with it as a Pittsburgher. Black brick, yellow brick. I will die in Pittsburgh on a beautiful day, a day I imagine much like today. I will die in Pittsburgh. Don't turn away. It will be a Monday, like today, in spring. Yes, it will be a Monday because this poem arrives on a Monday with its rhymes all awry and never so much as today have I felt so alive. Michael Sims is dead. They beat him because he was guilty and also, as you know, he was innocent. They held him in quarantine and beat him hard with questionnaires and with taxes. The witnesses are the beautiful Mondays, the radiant Tuesdays, the Wednesdays that belong to someone else in another town.
0: Black Brick, Yellow Brick.
1: You're listening to
0: Literature Out Loud. That was today's guest, poet, novelist, and blogger, Michael Sims. Michael, talk about the writers you admire. You've just mentioned Vallejo. Uh, Whose work got you started as a writer? What contemporary writers are you reading?
1: Well, I'm 68, so my vision of contemporary might be something different than Danielle's. (laughs) um, But for the poets who have been active and have reached their peak in my lifetime, there are three poets that I would name. James Wright, W.S. Merwin and Mary Oliver. All three of them were superb craftsmen, but they were also romantics. They believed in nature and they worshiped love. And uh, they used the medium of poetry to express feelings that are inexpressible. Uh, W.S. Merwin, in particular, was able to bridge the gap between what can be said and what cannot be said and his poems oftentimes point towards a a level of of experience that is inexpressible through words which may be better expressed through dance or through just looking at the stars or uh, something that's beyond words but those are three poets that I really admire they're all dead now so I'm not sure if they count as contemporaries among the poets living today uh, Naomi Shihab Nye is probably my favorite also, uh, the current uh, poet laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo, uh, uh, I'm very fond of her work. Again, she's able to express a, a uh, level of experience that goes beyond what language can usually reach.
0: Great. Well, will you read something else of yours now?
1: Certainly. You want a happy poem or a sad poem? I'm ready for anything. You're ready for anything. My kind of guy. (laughs) All right, here's a sad poem. It's called Wolf Corner. I uh, grew up in Texas, and uh, I'm a descendant of the Irish and Cherokee people who settled that area um, 150 years ago. My sister, when she died about 10 years ago, Um, I went back for the funeral, and when I did, a lot of memories and feelings about that that place um, in Texas, where our family has been for quite a while. Wolf Corner. I thought your death would change everything, but the Brazos River has not changed its course, and the shrug of these brown hills, the jagged, indifferent line of mesquite, Against the horizon, the strings of spittle hanging from the mouths of cattle as they chew cud in the narrow shade of the water tower remain as I remember. Although Wolf Corner, where we rode our bicycles to see the rotting carcasses of coyotes, wolves, and wild dogs nailed in the wooden scaffold as trophies, a custom, I'm told, ranchers adopted from the Comanche who hung scalps on a tree as a warning to our great-grandfathers, is now the entrance to a shopping mall. Walmart and KFC glisten in the Texas sunlight. In a dirt island in the middle of the asphalt, a small cactus garden blooms. Our ancestors, the Irish and Cherokee who settled this land, Horsebreakers, carpenters, farmers, builders of towns, Comanche fighters, freeholders, despisers of lawyers and politicians are still here. Their bones are beneath the soil.
2: Wow. That was our guest, Michael Sims, reading Wolf Corner.
0: (coughs) Michael, what... uh projects you embarked on now. You're so productive. I. Uh...
1: Well, thank you. I have a number of books in the works right now that are in various stages of production. I have a collection of poems which is probably more or less finished uh, in terms of the amount of poems I need, but I still need to revise the poems and pull it together into a book. And I have a, a publisher who's interested in it. I also uh, have a novel coming out in august uh, called bicycles of the gods it's an apocalyptic satire and um, i'm 68 years old and this is my first novel to come out i also have several other novels that are in the process of being written and are currently under contract with the same publisher so she's waiting for those manuscripts I i have first drafts of them of course but they they need a lot of work still so those are my writing projects, both poetry and fiction. In terms of editing, I have a daily blog, as you noted, and uh, I love publishing other people's work, including yours, John, and uh, being sort of the, the bridge or the facilitator, the impresario who brings uh, art to people. So that's very exciting. Um, also, I'm uh, working at... Uh, getting my work out there to, to an audience, doing interviews and and uh, sending out review copies and all that kind of stuff that has to do with publicizing a new, new book. And uh, so those are my literary projects. Let me
0: um, sit at your feet uh, for a minute as a, a learner because uh, I'd like to pursue this issue of... Um, How you get the sense of a book as a whole, one one thing I struggle with is, you know, I write a bunch of individual poems, but getting them to cohere is a different issue.
1: Well, a lot of poets, including Robert Frost and W.H. Auden, have said that if you have 50 poems in a book, there's actually 51 poems there, because the book itself, the collection of poems itself, makes a poem. So I, and I think probably most poets, put together a book, thinking of the book as a whole as a long poem, and you, you need a beginning, a middle, and an end, some kind of coherence there. Now, the, vo- the coherence might be in the voice. It's, it all sounds like it's being said by the same person, or it might be a thematic development. You, you, there, are, there are poems about Texas or poems about, uh, uh, about death or poems about love. Um, or the the coherence of the book might be something else, more stylistic. Uh, say uh, it's a collection of poems that all use rhyme and meter or a collection of poems that, uh, that are all landscape descriptions. So in any case, you need some sense that this book has, this book, is coherent, that, that the poems in there belong together.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, well, thanks
0: for that, I'll look at my poems again and try to <laughs> make them go here.
2: Michael, could we hear one more piece?
1: Certainly. One of my interests is biology. And um, I have a certificate in nutrition from Cornell University, so human biology fascinates me, but also the biology of the garden or of the woods. My wife and I compost as probably most people do nowadays. We have a a bin in the back and we throw our kitchen waste in there. And one day, uh, last year, I opened lid of the compost and looked in and I don't know if you've ever looked inside a compost but it's really disgusting but it also struck my curiosity what are these little critters that are crawling down there so I did a little bit of research and I wrote this poem compost I slide back the lid of the compost bin and a cloud of flies rises with a raw stench and I see creatures thriving in the dark. Nematodes, snails, slugs, wrigglers seething in the riot of banana skins, rhodifera twisting through apple cores, releasing sweetness, feather-winged beetles digesting leftover minestrone and hard crusts of bread softening and turning back with time. Sow bugs and the bugs that feed on them, rove beetles, predatory mites, formicid ants, and carabid. We should be grateful to them all, especially the invisible mesophilic bacteria who do the principled work of death. In the busy darkness beneath the garden, earthworms absorb bacilli through their epithelia while fine white threads of mycelia reach into the cells of the woody stalk and hard husk of sunflower, nourishing the roots of the elderberry, offering the fruit we harvest and simmer down to a thick syrup of darkness to consume a spoon at a time. Yum.
0: (laughs) That was Michael Sims reading Compost. And what collection was that from? Nightjar. Nightjar, that's your latest, right?
1: That was published last year, yes. Yeah.
2: Michael, how can interested listeners get a hold of your books and follow your blog?
1: The books are available in lots of places. In Pittsburgh, I'd recommend the White Whale Bookstore, a little plug for my friends there. Uh, also, of course, through online sources mm-hmm. such as uh, Amazon, I do believe though it 's important to support uh, local retailers uh, and the, the the smaller stores that um, that really keep American literature alive, even though I buy books through Amazon as everybody does. Mm-hmm. I prefer buying through through uh, smaller retailers. We need to keep that culture alive mm-hmm. we can 't let Amazon eat everything. So, uh, I, I would recommend in Pittsburgh area, go to White Whale. If you live in a different city, go to a local bookstore and request it. I'm sure they'll be glad to order it for you.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Penguin in uh, Swickley so has been very kind to us over the years.
1: Um, good, good, yes. Fine bookstore. Yeah. Well, I want to
0: thank Michael Sims and Danielle Connors for taking part in this episode of Literature Out Loud. Uh, The Literature Out Loud is sponsored by RMU Radio and Rune, the Robert Morris University Literary Magazine. We're having the release reading at 5 o'clock today, and uh, looking forward to it. It will be Danielle at the helm of (laughs) Rune, as usual, and Michael reading, so it's going to be something to look forward to.
1: Thank you, John and Danielle. I, I enjoyed being here.
2: Well, thank you for sharing your works with us. They were amazing.
1: Great
0: to
2: have you. I'm John Lawson. Thanks for listening.